I just can't quit you, 2017. I just can't quit you. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this episode, we're breaking the promise of our previous episode. That's right, we're continuing our epic farewell to 2017 by delving into the first of two parts detailing some of my favorite films of the year. That being said, this episode is going to discuss some of the movies that barely missed out on my top 10, but that I couldn't help but give some love. Of course, there are a bunch of films I still haven't caught up with as of this recording. Call Me By Your Name, The Shape of Water, Darkest Hour, Good Time, Wind River, Personal Shopper, I, Tanya, The Post, and Molly's Game, to name a few, that I'm still working through. So I reserve the right to amend this list going forward, or at least the top 10 um, in the future. As for the rest of the films that I have seen, we're going to talk about uh, the honorable mentions in a moment and the top 10 or so in the next episode. So without further ado, let's get into my honorable mentions presented here in alphabetical order. Colossal. Now this is an interesting film from director Nacho Vigalando, and he actually did the film Time Crimes about, uh, I think it's early 2000s, that I hadn't even heard of until Kai actually brought it to my attention. This is, I believe, one of his major, maybe I think his first English language film, and it stars Anne Hathaway as a struggling alcoholic um, with relationship issues who heads back to her hometown, and along the way discovers that she has an intriguing connection to a uh, kaiju attack happening in Seoul, South Korea. This one really floored me. I, I heard a lot of interesting things about how surprising and, uh, in a way, insightful the film was, but I, I wasn't, um, you know, I hear a lot of things about a lot of films and then sometimes go into them and, and don't really appreciate it in the same way uh, that I expected to. This is one of those films that actually met the expectations that I had going in and even surpassed them. And Hathaway is superb here as, uh, you know, sort of this, this person struggling kind of at a crossroads of their life, struggling to, fi- struggling to figure out where to go next. Jason Sudeikis is really, is really impressive here. It might actually be the, the, one of the standout performances in, in the film, just because we know Anne Hathaway is great. We know she has range. We've seen her in everything from The Princess Diaries, The Devil Wears Prada, to Les Miserables, where she won the Oscar. But Jason Sudeikis is primarily known for his comedic work, and in here really de- delves into a darkness and a dramatic side to him, that I hadn't really seen um, escalated to this point. The way that this film, the way that this film uh, ties into the whole giant monster genre is really intriguing. It, it really ties it back down to characters. And I'm not even a person that's interested in that's particularly interested in Godzilla movies or things like that. Uh, I actually thought the 2014 one was kind of a bore. Um, so you know, this found an uh, an access point for me to actually give a crap about. The giant monster battles happening by rooting it in in this really deep emotional center. Um, so if you haven't seen this one, and I know a lot of people haven't, I would definitely check it out uh, on you know Blu-ray or streaming or wherever you can find it. A ghost story. You wouldn't think that the uh, a very stripped down, uh, very artsy, uh, sort of esoteric, supernatural drama would be the follow-up film for the guy who did the Pete's Dragon remake for Disney last... Uh, was it last year? Feels like feels like a million years ago. That's what happens when you're a parent. Time goes by both so fast and so slowly. But A Ghost Story is a really impressive feat that David Lowry has put together here. 
Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara star as a young married couple. Casey Affleck's character dies early on. That's not a spoiler. Ghost is in the title, guys. Um, and spends the rest of the movie basically covered in a sheet, haunting his his widow. And it delves into the the way he experiences time, the way sort of the journey that he goes on. And I, I've never seen the afterlife, or or at least. Or at least this version, this part of the afterlife, not having gone to heaven or hell, but being kind of stuck in limbo. I've never seen it dramatized this way. Um, Mara, of course, is famous for delivering that that famous pie-eating scene this year, one of the most talked-about scenes in any film this year. And and uh, the score is really sets the tone for a very melancholy examination of time and space and and life and death and and uh, the cosmos. And I think hits upon the scope of that in a way that few films really have. Uh, this the song "I Get Overwhelmed" by Dark Rooms. I think is is tragically uh, unqualified. Perhaps I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure. I know it's not on the shortlist for best original song because I checked. Um, but it really should have been in contention unless it wasn't for this movie, which is probably the case. But uh, it really fits this film in in a very haunting, pun intended haunting way and uh it's not a movie that's for everybody and i heard you know some people warned me before i watched this film uh it might not work for you but you know give it a shot um it's definitely not not something that mainstream audiences will really appreciate there are a lot of long lingering shots and um, a lot of broad sweeping uh existential moments but um for those of you who enjoy that kind of thing and a really independent film this this has a very experimental feel to it that I think a lot of people, cinephiles especially, are really missing out on. John Wick, Chapter 2. The original John Wick was a sleeper hit. I think a lot of people sort of forget that because of how how fast that movie became a uh, became a, a an action staple once it hit DVD and Blu-ray. But I didn't even see it in, in theaters when it came out initially. You know, Keanu was on a little bit of a downturn for his career. The Matrix movies were long over, and he's been very hit and miss. Things like The Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, for example. And uh, John Wick, in a lot of ways, was his comeback film, and him sort of reclaiming his status as one of the the best action stars of our of our time. And John Wick Chapter 2 really built upon that, but for, first of all, just picking up where the original film left off and continuing that saga, hence really earning that Chapter 2 um, subtitle, but uh, elevating the stakes and taking John Wick uh, across the world and delving even more so into the mythology of the Continental and this sort of brotherhood of assassins that John Wick is a part of that was really one of the most fascinating parts of the original film. Reeves is, is spectacular here, doing a lot of his own stunts. The The camera work uh, is, is top-notch, uh, as good, if not better, than the first film. And it really left me hanging for a third movie. Um, I saw this with my dad and Freddie, and afterwards we were both like all sitting there, jaws open, waiting for chapter three. And if that's not the sign of a great sequel, to up the stakes, to develop the character and the plot... Uh, and mythology, and key you up for a a hell of a trilogy capper, then I don't know what is. A lot of people have really, when I've asked this on Twitter, what is the strongest action, American action film franchise going today? A lot of people tend to point to The Fast and Furious, but for me, those movies have kind of lost gas, again, pun intended. 
after the last one, which was eh, kind of a snooze and a bit of a downturn uh, for the franchise after Fast and Furious, uh, or I guess Furious 7. But um, John Wick, for me, is my choice. I think that the things that are going on in this film, the things that Keanu Reeves is pulling off, and the ensemble of character actors that show up in sort of small roles throughout is is uh, inherently compelling. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I can't wait to see what uh, what happens in the next film. Lady Bird. I talked about this one a little bit last week, um, but just getting into it a little bit more. This is, of course, director and writer Greta Gerwig's uh, directorial solo debut, um, starring Saoirse Ronan as a uh, young teenager named Lady Bird, who... Um, is really trying to find her way, find her place in the world, as we all do when we all hit adolescence. And it delves into her relationships and and um, principally her her sort of uh, on again, off again closeness with her mother and the the conflict there. Uh, you know, as someone who's now in his thirties, there was a lot of elements of this film that I really related to, as far as uh, feeling like your your parents. No, don't really understand what you're going through and uh, sort of that need to establish your independence and and um, rebel to a certain degree. Of course, I was never a teenage girl, so I can't speak specifically to the gender, uh, the gender part of that experience. But, um, you know, there's a certain universal theme then that Gerwig hits on in this film and the performances from uh, from Ronan and Laurie Metcalf as her mom. Are, are outstanding and uh, you know there's a reason that this film has been so talked about as I mentioned in the last episode it didn't quite hit me hard enough uh, it didn't resonate with me as much as it has with other people enough to crack my top 10 but this is easily in the you know the 11 to 15 range or so of the best films I've seen this year definitely quite an achievement on Gerwig's end for um, creating a story that's apparently is very specific to her own life, but also speaks to uh, to the adolescent in all of us. So Lady Bird's definitely going into the awards season, or at least the Oscar season, is definitely poised to get um, probably a screenplay, screenplay nomination, but if we're lucky, director uh, and picture nominations as well. In, in addition, of course, to uh, recognition for the incredible performances that are really anchor the film in the mother-daughter dynamic that is the emotional center. The Lego Batman movie. I didn't see the Lego movie in theaters either, uh, since we've already confessed to the John Wick of it all. But the Lego Batman movie, I you know, I eventually did, of course, catch up with the Lego movie. And I love it. I think it's great, just like everybody else does. But the Lego Batman movie, as a longtime Batman fan, you guys that have listened to this podcast know that I love me some Batman. And I will see any movie that has Batman in it. So when I heard all the things about this film going in, that it was basically a, uh, a parody of the character and commenting on his long history and, and the wide pendulum of tones that have been covered therein from the campy Adam West style uh, to the really serious Nolan and Ben Affleck versions. Um, you know, that sounded like something that was immediately intriguing and uh, attractive to me. The fact that this film takes a sort of um, naked gun, National Lampoon style approach to that and crams so many jokes in there about Batman and his and his world, about the fact that uh, 
you know, comic book films in general, sort of deflating the genre in a, in a way similar to what Deadpool did, but on a more friend, family-friendly level. I was really, really pleased with this one. I've actually watched it a couple times since I got it on Blu-ray. It's one of those films that, in a lot of ways, feels like it's tailor-made for me. Uh, as you guys know, I've had an article on the site about how much I love Jerry Maguire. That there's, that's referenced in here. Um, Rosario Dawson plays Barbara Gordon. Just a lot of things in this film like that I almost feel like I were handpicked for my own enjoyment. Um, Will Arnett is, is great, of course, as Bruce Wayne slash Batman. And the film, by sort of deconstructing what Batman is and what Batman has been over the decades that he's been in comics and on the big screen and small screen and everywhere else, uh, I think ha- boils it down to a very tangible message that um, is, is very pertinent to kids and translates well to the family audience that the Lego brand has really cultivated for itself. It's really impressive with this movie um, how Lego has, has developed has developed as a as a film franchise. I mean, we have essentially a shared universe of Lego movies at this point. You have the Lego movie, and then the sequel to that that's still forthcoming. You have the Lego Batman movie, which I really loved, and I know didn't make nearly as much money as the Lego movie, so I think it's kind of considered a mild disappointment box office-wise, which is a disappointment. And then the Lego Ninjago movie, which I also saw this year, and which was okay, but nowhere near uh, worthy of the Lego Batman movie or its predecessor. So Lego Batman movie, not necessarily the best, um, the best comic book movie to come out this year, but, uh, you know, it's at least it's, it's better than justice league. So, uh, so it has that going for it and it's a hell of a good time. And, uh, one that I definitely look forward to rewatching with my kids over and over again in the years to come. Spider-Man homecoming. I reviewed this one for, we got this covered.com and I gave it four, out of five. I more or less stand by that. It's maybe on a little bit of the lower part of the four now that I've seen it a couple times. But um, this is a really strong reboot for the character. We haven't seen Spider-Man on the big screen in this successful a manner since 2004 when Tobey Maguire was in Spider-Man 2. And I think that while the film does feel bogged down by all the Marvel Cinematic Universe references, Tom Holland really nails the the tone of what Peter Parker should be, that he's supposed to be, you know, precocious, but also timid, uh, brave, but also insecure. And I think that the film makes a real effort to ingratiate him into the world of Iron Man and the Avengers. And by the end of the film, it's, it's easy to see how he would slip right into Infinity War in a few months. Um, Michael Keaton is, of course, great. As the Vulture, you know, uh, no spoilers, but the one twist that really makes his character uh, pop and really and gives him the opportunity to to take over a scene, essentially. And, um, you know, all the effects in this, the effects in here are fine. I think the, the action scenes are not that great, but the whole uh, John Hughes-style approach to Spider-Man, I think, is just another example of how Marvel Studios... Uh, in this case, in conjunction with Sony, how Marvel Studios has found a way to create its own little niche by having its different heroes inhabit sort of different subgenres, with uh, Guardians in this big space space opera, and uh, you know Ant Man, and it's and it's like a little heist movie, and and uh, Captain America is like a historical war epic, at least the first one, um, and this is clearly the the teen dramedy of the MCU. So uh, I'm excited to see what the future holds for Peter Parker, for this version of Peter Parker, hopefully with a lot less Iron Man. 
uh, or none if he's, if he's seeing how, see what happens with Infinity War. And um, if you want a little bit more of Sp Spider-Man goodness from me, I guess you can check out the previous episodes that I've done on this film, as well as the post that I just posted on uh, the website, um, a product review of a projector that was sent to me, and I actually used Spider-Man Homecoming as my test film, because Kai hadn't seen it before. So there you go, Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, it's nice to have Spidey you know, back in Marvel's hands where he belongs. Thor Ragnarok. Swear to God... Not trying to stick in the MCU, but this they just had a really they just had a really uh, strong year. And this this year altogether was really uh, really amazing for comic book films. All of them watchable on some level or another, um, of the least of the big Marvel and DC. I as you guys know, I even moderately enjoyed Justice League. So Thor Ragnarok, I, I was hoping going into this, I was a moderate fan of the Thor the Dark World, it's fine. It's one of my lesser, it's one of my least favorite MCU entries. And I'm actually a, a sort of a defender of the original Thor movie. But I had high hopes going into this one that director Taika Waititi, who did Hunt for the Wilder People, which I really enjoyed, What We Do in the Shadows, which I really enjoyed, and uh, Boy and Eagle vs. Shark. He's done a bunch of smaller movies. This is this is his big uh, this is his big moment to prove himself as a blockbuster director, and he knocked it out of the park. By taking Thor and by the, by removing all the self-seriousness and sort of dour tone that uh, the Thor films traditionally have and injecting sort of a, a off-the-wall space opera uh, Flash Gordon-style uh, romp, I think having Jeff Goldblum in your film really helps, uh, he brought this franchise to life in a way that in Kenneth Branagh and Alan Taylor, nobody else has really done to date. It's funny how for Iron Man, the first film is the strongest. For Captain America, I'd say the second film arguably is the strongest. And then for Thor, it's the third film. This, the, this one is the best Thor we've seen so far. It lets Chris Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth be funny. It uh, kind of takes the piss out of Tom Hiddleston in a way that he kind of he needed after his last few appearances as Loki that the character was due for. It gives us... The sort of gives us the Planet Hulk movie that fans have been asking for forever. We have an amazing new female MCU character in Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie. I already mentioned John, Jeff Goldblum. The, there's so much great great stuff going on in here. Uh, and if Marvel holds to their trilogy rule, that it seems like each character or a property within the MCU has been getting a trilogy of films and that's it. Uh, and that's it then this should be the last Thor film. And, you know, if they're going to go out, they went out with an, an incredible uh, incredible bang that uh, really makes it makes you wish that they had, they had done this approach to the character much earlier. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I'm, I've always been a fan of Michael McDonough. Uh, I enjoyed In Bruges, though not as much as most people. And I definitely enjoyed Seven Psychopaths. His... his ability to take something tragic and dark and violent and and uh, disturbing in a way and twist it a little and turn it into um, turn it into something hilarious in a kind of fucked up way um, is mostly unparalleled I'd say and three billboards outside Ebbing Missouri just feels like all of those emotions all that uh, all that skill that he's sort of sort of honed with the two previous two films and I know he has a, a um, sort of a, a history of playwright, uh, playwriting, and that kind of thing. Uh, it really seems amped up in this film. You have Francis McDormand, of course, as the mom of a murdered and raped 
um, I guess she's a teenage girl. It's unclear. I think she's a teenager, early 20s, um, who's on a, on a quest for vengeance, takes out three billboards, sort of calling out the, uh, the sheriff of the local town. I, again, I talked, like Lady Bird, I talked about this on the last episode a little bit. Um, Frances McDormand's performance here is, is incredible. Probably one of the best that she's done since Fargo, winning the Oscar there. Woody Harrelson is strong here. Woody Harrelson's usually strong. I've heard a lot of Oscar buzz for Woody Harrelson. I don't know if I quite would go that far for him. Um, but Sam Rockwell steals this movie in a lot of ways. I think Sam Rockwell has been one of the most underrated actors for years. And I think he's definitely due for at least an Oscar nomination with this one. I know a lot of people have issues with his character and and the uh, the sort of direction that his his arc takes him, especially in the latter half of the movie. I think it's a lot more complex than some people are, are seeing it as. I think that the film doesn't really necessarily give you easy answers. Everyone has several shades of gray, not 50, but several shades of gray um, with the, their actions and, and the people you root for um, do do terrible things that sort of challenge your uh, your allegiance to them and you find sort of you're shifting um, the protagonist of the film sort of shifts from moment to moment in a way as far as whose side you're on and, and who uh, who you sort of want to succeed in any given moment. And I think that's that sort of moving target of morality is exactly what the film is trying to get at. And I think that some of the critics that are um, looking at it in too, uh, in too much of a polarized way, you know, might have difficulty with that. And I could totally understand that read. I didn't personally have that experience with it. I thought that the film was living basically in that, that gray area and trying to uh, expound upon it in, in an interesting and fascinating character-driven way. So for me, this was a really strong film. Didn't quite make my top 10, but it, it was like Lady Bird, probably in the 11 to 15 range. Uh, really strong performances across the board. The writing is really strong, even though sometimes, yeah, it's a little bit too on the nose. That kind of takes away from it for me a little bit. Um, I feel like at moments it might have a little bit too much going on, but uh, still has a, a shit ton to offer. Martin McDonough's fierce uh, screenwriting and directing really comes through here. And the performances, if for nothing else, the performances alone are worth watching. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. War for the Planet of the Apes. I really loved Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, the previous film. I liked Rise, the, the first one of this rebooted franchise, but I loved Dawn. War, for me, is maybe a, a step below its predecessor. Dawn was essentially like up there with Whiplash. is one of my favorite films of 2014. Um, and I think director Matt Reeves, returning from, from Dawn here, crafts a, a really strong conclusion to this, this, I guess, it's really more of a reboot than a prequel trilogy of apes films i've gone back and i mentioned on the podcast before i've gone back and tried to watch some of the older planet of the apes movies and war for the planet of the apes is clearly among the best to me it, it takes this character um of caesar played by andy circus who really give him a this guy deserves a fucking oscar already uh, at least a nomination something a special achievement award so, something because he has developed this character into one of the richest um, and I use this in air, quote, air quotes because where this movie takes him is, again, like three billboards into some little bit of moral gray area. Um, hero, one of the most compelling heroes we've had in films of this nature in years. I think that uh, the effects are top-notch, possibly even stronger than in Dawn, but it's really the character of Caesar and how this film puts you into his headspace. 
there's um, a lot of nice follow-through and Easter eggs with the, the classic franchise. There's uh, a very entertaining new character played by Steve Zahn, a bad ape that I'm sure you've heard about. And um, I think he brings a lot to this film and, and gives it a, a dose of levity, which otherwise it kind of lacks across the board. And uh, it's, just, it's just impressive to me how this film satisfyingly brings Caesar's arc to a close. Um, do you want to hear more of my thoughts with Freddy about how the conclusion probably could have been a little more improved and a little more of a, a uh, mind-blown uh, type of moment? You can listen to our episode uh, in the podcast for uh, War for the Planet of the Apes. We had a really in-depth conversation about it. I liked it more than Freddy, and I think initially I gave it a 4.5. It's still, it's dropped slightly as I've had time to think about it to a 4, but it's still a really strong movie, and uh, if this is the last Planet of the Apes movies we get, movie we get in this, uh, in this rebooted franchise, I think they ended it at the perfect place. Wonder Woman. Last but of course not least, we have the Amazon princess herself, Wonder Woman in here. This film, uh, I mentioned it on a previous episode. Kai and I reviewed it. You can hear our daughter sort of in the background babbling slash fussing. Um, but more specifically, in the summer 2017 wrap-up episode, I basically declared Wonder Woman as the, the, the film of the summer. And in many ways, it's, it's one of the films of the year. I'd say if you put Wonder Woman up there with, um, with Get Out is another one. Um, you know, there's, there's these certain films this year that really typify um, the political uh or the political environment the the social movement and everything that's been going on in the news in real life i feel like wonder woman ha has is very much of its time and uh, for a character that hasn't appeared on the big screen in her own solo movie in ever since the 70 something years that she's been around i think director patty jenkins really um really justified why Wonder Woman should be talked about as much as Batman, as much as Spider-Man, as much as Iron Man and Superman, all the characters that have man in their name. Uh, I think Wonder Woman hits a lot of the right marks in telling, uh, telling an origin story that we've never seen before on the big screen. And Gal Gadot brings just the right level of strength and vulnerability and compassion to this character, really uh, creating a film that... You know, I, I can see, I'm a, I mean, I'm 30-something-year-old man, and I can see this film being one that little kids now, boys and girls alike, are going to go back to and be like, this is the moment, this is the movie that inspired me to to follow my dreams or to get into cinema. This is, this is the movie for this generation, how in a way, you know, maybe 15 years ago, Spider-Man was that movie, and maybe, you know, another 15 years before that, the Tim Burton Batman was the one of my childhood that that really, you know, uh, really uh, awakened my interest in storytelling and in, in film and, and that kind of thing. And this, this is the movie that's going to speak to the little kids of now and propel them and in a lot of ways define their childhood. And the fact that such a strong, uh, beautiful, compassionate movie with a message like this about how basically love is Wonder Woman's superpower is, is a beautiful thing. And um, hands down that No Man's Land sequence is by far the best and uh, probably most powerful and most memorable scene from any film that I've seen this year. And with good reason, because it really speaks to right now the 
the divide that we're experiencing in our country in so many different ways. And Wonder Woman sort of unites everyone um, behind the, the simple principle of caring about others and uh, being compassionate and putting love in, into the world instead of hate. And for, for nothing else, I think Wonder Woman is by far one of the, one of the best films this year based on that. Um, the only reason it didn't make my top 10, again, this is probably right outside. There were some of the, the basically most of the villain problems that have plagued like the Marvel films kind of carries over here into the DC side of things. Um, there's too much of a CG fest going on in the finale. And uh, the villain twist was, wasn't really much of a twist to me. Um, kind of saw that coming and it was not really as satisfying as... Um, as it could have been, but Gal Gadot's performance was amazing. Chris Pine's supporting role was great. Um, a lot of the themes and everything that the film's getting at, as I already mentioned, were were on another level. And uh, I'm very excited to see that Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot are both back to reunite on the sequel. And hopefully, they can extend the themes and extend the impact that this film has has made onto uh, you know onto many more films to come. All right, that's it. Those are my honorable mentions. For 2017, that's all I have for now. If you want, you can rate and review the Crooked Table podcast on iTunes if you'd be so kind. We're also on Stitcher and we're on Spotify. So go ahead and and click that little button to follow us so you can be alerted to new episodes. Um, Follow me, Robert Yanis Jr., on Twitter at Crooked Table. We're also on Facebook and the other social medias. You can find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies at CrookedTable.com. As I said, next episode, we're going to get to my top 10 films of 2017 and finally welcome the sweet embrace, hopefully, of 2018. Until then, I've been Rob. We'll get you around the table next week. Roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.